0: I'm your host Anna Denino and welcome to episode 26 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying an iced hazelnut latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the death of Kendrick Johnson. This episode covers the gripping details of the case of Kendrick Johnson which has been a fight to discover the truth since 2013. On January 10th of that year, high school student Kendrick Johnson didn't return from school, immediately scaring his family into a search that would end the next morning when his body was discovered, horrifyingly, rolled up in a wrestling mat in the gym at Lowndes High School. Police immediately announced the death to be a tragic accident, however, the details of this case go much deeper, and upon some investigation, the theory of an accident starts to fall apart at the seams. But, if not an accident, then what really happened to Kendrick Johnson? That is the question that his family has been trying to answer for years, and recent coverage of this case is bringing their desperate search for the truth, the attention that it deserves. Kendrick Johnson was a 17-year-old sophomore at Lowndes High School on the day of January 10, 2013, when he got up and got on the bus to go to school, but never returned. Kendrick was known for his long hair, big brown eyes, and he had a really bright future ahead of him, as well as many loved ones. Kendrick was about 5'10 and a basketball and football player for his high school, and he dreamt of becoming a professional basketball player one day. He was an honorable student and lived with his mother and father, Kenneth and Jacqueline. His parents had met in Valdosta, Georgia, and lived there for their entire lives, as they grew older deciding to raise their children there. Kendrick did have a brother and a sister who had children of their own, so he was an uncle as well, and they were a very close-knit family, and even though Kenneth was a truck driver spending a lot of time on the road, he spoke with them all the time. January 9th was one such occasion when Kendrick talked to his father on the phone, and unfortunately this would be the last conversation that they would have together. His father noted that this was a very normal call, and nothing seemed amiss with Kendrick that night. January 10th was just like any other morning, Kendrick got up and got ready for the day, kissed his mother goodbye, and then got on the bus to go to school. In the afternoon, when the bus returned to drop him off, however, Kendrick was not there. Immediately concerned, Kendrick's mother went out to ask the bus driver where he was, and the driver said that Kendrick hadn't gotten on the bus at all. Thinking that maybe Kendrick's sister had just picked him up that day, Jacqueline called her next, but neither of his siblings had seen him. Most of this initial night was spent making calls to everyone they could think of trying to find out if anyone had a clue as to where Kendrick could be. Around 12am was when Jacqueline called the police who came to her home to make a report. She said that they seemed alarmingly unconcerned about Kendrick's whereabouts even during this initial interaction, and they even insinuated that Kendrick might have just been spending time with a girl. Jacqueline, however, was insistent that this wasn't the case but she has since said that she just had a horrible feeling that very first night that Kendrick was gone. The next morning, January 11th, Kendrick's body was discovered at Lowndes High School. He had never even made it out of the building on the previous day. He was found at around 10am by a group of high schoolers, rolled up in a wrestling mat that was standing upright in a corner of the school gym. His feet, wearing only socks, were visible sticking out of the top of the mat, which is how he was noticed. The students took the mat down, not realizing that they were dealing with a possible crime scene, and immediately noticed that the smell of blood and vomit was in the air. The school went on lockdown, and the police were immediately called by a coach, and Jacqueline was actually present in the school at the time, as she had gone there with Kendrick's sister that morning to look for traces of her son. When the police arrived, they found that Kendrick's body had been upside down, rolled up in this mat when it was found. His hands were not outstretched but at his sides, and two pairs of shoes and a textbook were also found in the gym. One of these pairs of shoes was inside the mat, and the other was split up, one outside the mat and one in the mat under Kendrick's head. The pair that was inside looked particularly odd, almost appearing to have been thrown in behind him. This particular gym did not have any lockers for athletes to store their belongings, so it was actually pretty common for different items to be stored in the mats during the day. There is a surveillance video that showed Kendrick in the gym at 1.27pm by himself, and he was marked absent from the following class, so this is most likely the last sighting of him on tape. There were some initial mishandlings with the crime scene by police, and it wasn't even ever properly taped off to prevent further contamination. Police officers also failed to wear protective coverings over their shoes. There was also another pair of shoes found in the same gym as well as a hoodie that were never collected as evidence even though they did not belong to Kendrick. Additionally, dried blood was found on the gym wall near where his body was, found with six impact points. This blood was confirmed not to belong to Kendrick, but police never looked into who it actually was from, rationalizing that it wasn't related to this case which is extremely frustrating. Only to add to the odd details here, it took six hours after Kendrick's body was found for the coroner to be notified, even though Georgia law requires that the coroner be notified immediately when a body is found. The coroner also believed that the body had been moved, and allegedly police had removed Kendrick from the mat, then re-rolled him into it to take photos. On top of everything else, the police announced that they believed no foul play was involved that very same day, January 11th with no autopsy and not much information, which is very soon to put forth such an opinion. CNN did a lot of reporting on Kendrick's case, and they hired a forensic video solutions team to look over the surveillance footage from the school, one of the most suspicious areas of this case. There were four motion-activated cameras in the gym where Kendrick was found, all of which had a gap in time on January 10th even though they should have been working, The first camera stopped recording at 12.04 pm, resuming at 1.09 pm. The second stopped recording at 11.05 am, resuming at 1.15 pm. The third camera wasn't recording between 11.05 am and 1.16 pm. And the fourth wasn't recording between 12.04 pm and 1.09 pm. This forensic team noted that the footage did not come from original files, absolutely not something that an investigator should be relying on as evidence. Grant Fredericks, a certified forensic video analyst from this team, told CNN, quote, they've been altered in a number of ways, primarily in image quality and likely in dropped information, information loss. There's also a number of files that are corrupted because they've not been processed correctly and they're not playable, end quote. The school didn't provide any answers for the surveillance footage issues, only that the security system was old. And this calls a lot into question, especially in terms of whether all the footage was even provided to investigators at all, and if not, why one final odd thing to note with the cameras is that the discovery of Kendrick's body is not on record. The next time that he is seen on video is when his body was being removed by authorities. An autopsy was performed on Kendrick's body by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and this autopsy determines that his cause of death was suffocation, officially referred to as positional asphyxia, and it was estimated that he had been upside down in the mat for 21 hours. Kendrick's death was ruled a tragic accident, and police theorized that he had been climbing up on the mat to try and retrieve his shoes from inside when he fell into the mat and was unable to free himself. At face value, this is plausible, however, it would be an odd way to end up in that position, and this is perpetuated by the fact that the width of the opening in the mat was not even as wide as Kendrick's shoulders. The width of the opening was fourteen inches while the width of Kendrick's shoulders was nineteen inches. Additionally, the mats were only six feet tall, and Kendrick was five foot ten. Kendrick's legs were also twisted, which is inconsistent with him reaching down into the mat on his own. Not to mention the fact that his arms were found pressed to his sides calls the accident theory into question. If he were reaching out to try and grab his shoes, wouldn't at least one arm have been outstretched? These details are absolutely sufficient enough to warrant further questions, however, police did not adequately address them. Medical examiners should base their rulings on physical evidence rather than on theories, but this ruling was made based on the theory of a tragic accident, and because of that, police had no cause to continue with an investigation. His family sensed that foul play had to be involved and they demanded an independent second autopsy. Kendrick's body was exhumed in June of 2011 and the family hired pathologist Dr. William Anderson to perform this autopsy. In cases of positional asphyxia, as it becomes increasingly difficult to draw a breath, a person's heart will begin to fail and fluids will build up in the lungs, which ultimately leads to suffocation. However, Dr. Anderson found no fluid in Kendrick's lungs. Normal lungs range from 250 to 280 grams of weight, while fluid filled lungs weigh generally around 750 to 840 grams after positional asphyxia. According to this independent autopsy, quote, the right and left lungs weigh 260 and 240 grams respectively, end quote. and this makes a diagnosis of positional asphyxia incredibly unlikely this wasn't the only discovery from the second autopsy, and Dr. Anderson also found signs of blunt force trauma to the back of Kendrick's head near his neck. However, this was a very small bruise about 2-3 to cm wide, so there isn't much to be said conclusively about it. An area of bleeding not noticed during the first autopsy was noted by Dr. Anderson, very close to a nerve center called the carotid sinus, which essentially controls the body's blood pressure. Severe pressure applied to the area around the carotid sinus can slow the heart rate and this can happen very quickly and cause loss of consciousness. This is important because the bruise found near this area on Kendrick's body could indicate that his death was caused by pressure or blunt force to the carotid sinus region, whether it was intentional or not. This would explain the lack of fluid in his lungs if he were placed in the mat after he was already dead. During this autopsy, Dr. Anderson discovered that all of Kendrick's organs had been removed and replaced by crumpled up newspaper, this being the fact that has largely propelled conspiracy theories associated with this case. Kendrick's body was originally processed by Harrington Funeral Home after the first autopsy, and they claimed to have never received the organs after that autopsy so that Kendrick could be buried with them. The funeral home thought that Kendrick's organs had been compromised by deterioration, and that's why they weren't received. However, the window of time for such deterioration would have been very short. Either way, the funeral home had decided to just stuff his body, which does sound really alarming. However, it's actually common practice in such a situation. The Georgia Secretary of State office did investigate the funeral home and found no wrongdoing, besides it being insensitive and cheap to use newspaper not to mention the insensitivity of not notifying the family of such a detail. On July 28th of 2014, the Johnson family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Lowndes County Board of Education, claiming that Kendrick had either been attacked or injured in some way, and then placed into the mat, specifically pushing that this was a racially motivated incident. The suit mentioned one particular student who had been bullying Kendrick at school, and who the family had previously approached the school about, but nothing had been done. The student's name was Brandon Bell. Brandon had a younger brother as well named Brian, who was a classmate of Kendrick's, and the boy's father Rick was an FBI agent, which has led to many a conspiracy theory regarding that family as a whole, as Brandon and Brian have become the main suspects and have refused to help in the investigation. Kendrick did get into a fight with Brian on a bus trip before a football game in 2011, and both were told that they could not ride the bus back home. There was also a rumor that there was animosity between the two over a relationship that Kendrick had with a classmate. However, current Sheriff Ashley Puck has said, quote, The FBI states in two different documents there was no basis to this rumor and no evidence to support it, end quote. The brothers have been a large part in the media focus for this case, which actually contributed to Brandon Bell losing out on a scholarship to play linebacker for the Florida State University football team, and this is a very difficult detail to consider because it's totally possible that the two weren't involved in any way and that this opportunity was stripped from him without cause. Unfortunately, in this case, accusations have at times run wild, and without any evidence to back them up, the actual tragedy of Kendrick's death has been pushed aside a bit. In January of 2015, Kendrick's family filed another lawsuit, this time a $100 million dollar suit postulating that Rick Bell had ordered his two sons to kill Kendrick. Lowndes County attorney Jim Elliott stated that these claims were baseless, and I don't want to criticize the Johnson family considering all that they have been through, however it does seem clear that this was an unnecessary reach. In November of 2015, a motion was filed to stay this case and a stay is, quote, a ruling by the court in civil and criminal procedure halting further legal process in a trial or other legal proceeding, end quote. This motion was denied, but Jacqueline did dismiss the suit shortly after. Despite this, Kenneth and Jacqueline were faced with a suit against them for about $850,000 in attorney's fees and a million dollars for defamation damages as a result of their accusations. On August 10th of 2017, a judge ruled that the Johnsons would have to pay $292,000 in attorney's fees to everyone that they had accused in their lawsuit. On June 20th of 2016, the Department of Justice announced that their investigation was complete and that they would not be filing any criminal charges related to Kendrick Johnson's death. There are clearly many different angles to the theories in this case, however the main object of discussion is whether or not foul play was involved. One of the main points that leans towards the involvement of foul play is that it was common practice for students to store things in the mats. Because students did this all the time, they knew that the easiest way to get those items back would be to just tilt the mat over and retrieve whatever was on the floor, definitely not to try and climb headfirst into the mat from the top, and Kendrick as a sophomore would have learned this by that time. It's also important to consider that foul play doesn't necessarily mean premeditated murder. Kendrick could have been accidentally killed by a classmate or classmates in a dispute who panicked and placed his body in the mat to try and cover it up. If Kendrick was killed, it is possible that the gym mat was laid on its side and he was rolled up into it, which would explain the slightly twisted position of his legs. Kendrick's family has never had confidence in the way that their son's investigation was handled, but they have never swayed in their fight to confirm what the truth really is. Now, a documentary that was released in 2021 is bringing newfound attention to this case after its online debut in August. It was released by writer, director, and producer Jason Pollock, who tries to bring to light new evidence to finally receive an answer in this case. Using state evidence gathered from a four-year-long undercover investigation, as well as interviews with Mitch Creedle, a homicide detective assigned to the initial 2013 federal criminal rights investigation launched by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Middle District of Georgia. This documentary highlighted the many mishandlings in this case. In an interview with the crime report about the film, Mitch Creedle is quoted saying, quote, When I got this case, I realized that everything at the beginning was done improperly as far as a homicide or death investigation is supposed to go, end quote. The film brings into the discussion the potential involvement of the local FBI agent Rick Bell, the father of the two key suspects in this case, Brandon and Brian, who engaged in obstruction of justice and intimidation of local witnesses to protect his sons. A judge signed roughly 21 search warrants related to Rick Bell's involvement, however he was never prosecuted and was instead allowed to resign from his job. The documentary also highlighted the racial animus that perpetuates in cities across the country and calls out the failure and avoidance of the entertainment industry to tell black crime stories like Kendrick's. Producer Jason Pollack has commented on this, saying, quote, The biggest problem was getting Hollywood to put it out. Everybody rejected it. Every network rejected it. It really showed how the media only cares if the case is famous or not. Most people in Hollywood, especially white people, hadn't heard KJ's story, and we had a lot of doors closed because of that fact. This is an incredibly important sentiment to highlight as it relates to true crime cases because so many cases are underreported or not reported on at all until there are major documentaries or other such media produced about them. As an example, not many people knew of the Kathleen Peterson story until the Netflix documentary The Staircase was produced, and that is a sad fact to face. Victims often don't receive the help and recognition from the media that they deserve, just because something else in the news at the time is considered more interesting. As true crime consumers, it is important to recognize that pushing for media coverage and even learning more about individual cases on our own can actually make a huge difference. On March 10th of 2021, CNN reported that the investigation into Kendrick's death had been reopened, according to Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk. Kendrick's mother, Jacqueline, told the publication, quote, It's been eight long years, I'm feeling hopeful. End quote. Polk had a completely different opinion, stating, quote, I do find it disturbing and unethical that this investigation seemed to turn into a witch hunt after the FBI told the United States Attorney for the Middle District of Georgia that they had found nothing criminal, end quote. In a New York Times article published on January 27th of 1922, she maintains that Kendrick's death was a, quote, weird accident, end quote, but for almost a decade now, this case has not been forgotten by the town of Valdosta, Georgia, and hopefully this new wave of interest will reach an evidence-backed conclusion. Personally, this case is one which is extremely difficult to form an opinion on, because while there are an overwhelming number of discrepancies and strange details, there isn't much physical evidence to back up any conclusion. I can't say for sure if I believe Kendrick Johnson was killed on January 10th of 2013, however, I will say that the further I got into my research, the more likely it seemed. It's so frustrating when in cases like this the police immediately write off foul play, because it completely skews the investigation and leaves us with unreliable evidence to sift through. Kendrick's family has been incredibly strong all these years, and for their sake and for his, I am glad that this case is being revisited. In the wake of such a tragic loss, all they are hoping for is the truth, and I sincerely hope that this new investigation can grant them at least that much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about the death of Kendrick Johnson, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at CrimeBistro.com. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at CrimeBistroPodcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.